namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami I really love the way you explained Sakai Diti and the other two last night. Would you mind explaining Sangyo Chena Ten to enlightenment, please? I don't feel confident with that. To be honest, the other seven, I'm still kind of. Maybe next year. <laughs> Maybe never. Anyway, I don't, yeah. I don't feel confident, okay, so. I'm not sure I get this, but in awareness, so here's the, the line circled. Awareness, this is what it is. Uh, there is now Niroda, here, here and now, Niroda. Dear Ajahn, is there arising and passing away from the above? You emphasize on above, is it because there is no impermanent suffering or self? My understanding above is permanent, no suffering, no self. Thank you. From, um, so I'm not quite sure. Well, I'll just have a stab at it. Uh, so, so we go back to the, the, the Buddha's enlightenment. So if you take, you go back to the story of the prince, Siddhartha, and the four Devadutas, we all know that story from... You must have learned it in childhood. So you have the prince is dissatisfied with princely life. You know, he's, and he's a successful being. He has power. He has beauty. He is accomplished. So the symbology there is there's someone who has all the worldly dharmas, the best you can get. The young Song Sai, <laughs> right? He still doubts, and uh, and Dad says, "Well, I want my my boy to keep up the family business, so I better just keep him home." And of course, uh, he gets even more worldly dharmas then, uh, and. Still, there's this doubt, isn't there? You know, is this all there is? And that, to me, that's a, that's a symbol of bulalok. <laughs> Did I get the tone right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm fighting with Thai tones. It's very it's difficult language for me to hear. So basically, he's, uh, he's just done with the world, even though he has everything. And that's, 
you know, how accurate that is historically, we don't know. But you, I think we can all, we can all appreciate what that points to because we, we all have that same feeling because we, you know, we live very wealthy lives now. Well, I'm sure we have better health care than he had and, and uh, so on and so forth. So then if you look at it as, as a kind of iconic story where there is this deep, deep disturbing dissatisfaction with life not because the person is psychologically troubled. He's not psycho. He's successful. He's not. He doesn't have to go into therapy. It's not, it's, it's not that kind of issue. <laughs> um, and then how does it work? Well, there's a curiosity. And so he asks his chana, his charioteer, his driver, I think some of you have drivers. <laughs> Do you call them chana? <laughs> so he goes out and, and, and he looks at normal life. And that's the sort of, isn't that the kind of the awakening? It's like being an adolescent and being absorbed by all the things that you think are important, your self-image and whatever it is. And then suddenly you start to look around at the reality of life. So he, you know, he sees what? Shall we start with the sick person? He sees a sick person, and I mean really sick, bubonic plague sick, uh, you know, kind of HIV, very, very sick. And he is shocked. And, and, and that happens, doesn't it? Where even though sickness is all around, people don't notice it. It's, like, it's, the, con, it's con, the conceit of youth or the conceit of health. The conceit of health. And uh, I get that sometimes. You know, when everyone else has the flu and I don't get the flu, I think, oh, <laughs> be careful. <laughs> You're going to get the flu. But it, it, can, it can operate that way. So, so even though sickness is around, it, it, it's like not, you, don't, you don't take it on board, but now he really sees it. The human condition has a lot of sickness in it, and he's shocked. He's really shocked. It's, so it's not just you know, that he's got the flu and he's a bit disappointed. It's a, like a deep existential experience of the human condition being very, very limited and very, very fragile and very, very subject to pain and, and sickness. You know? So you have to appreciate how deeply that goes into his psyche and he, and he returns to the palace and he's not very happy, right? And all the, all the goodies of, of uh, worldly life become, so what? You know, so what, so what, so what, so what? And he's just not interested. And of course, then the second time he sees a, uh, an old person, really, really old. So like my mom was, my mom was 96. She was really old. <laughs> I mean, and you, you, you hear those descriptions of the old person in the text. I saw my mom, yeah. Uh, there was a funny story with my mom. 
which I didn't know about until the funeral. But um, I, I had two friends who were physiotherapists and came and gave mom a massage once a week. Very good Buddhist friends. And they, and mom was a bit shy to be washed and such like, but she wore, <laughs> she wore this red bathrobe, right? So the ladies were coming to, you know, bath her, and she, she didn't have any clothing under a bathrobe. And this is the first time they had come to take care of her. So, again, I didn't know about this until the funeral. So, mom's standing in front of the big uh, bathroom uh, mirror. And Adrian and Linda are beside her, helping her. And mom says, prepare to see Venus de Milo. And goes like this. <laughs> My mom had a good sense of humor. And she was like 90, 92 by then. And really, you know, she had uh, osteoporosis and it sunk down and like that. But she had a great sense of humor. But anyway, that wasn't the story, was it? This is a different story. So um, he sees a, a, an old person and uh, is again deeply shocked. And, and why is he shocked? Not just because, you know, it's his granny who's getting old. It's not that. It's like it's deeper, deeper, deeper than that. He said, this is the human condition that we are subject to that if we don't die first. And it's serious. It's seriously difficult to be old. You know, it's a very, very serious thing in him. And then, of course, the third time he goes out, he sees death. You know, and, and um, like in the West, to see a corpse is like rare. I know my mom looked much better uh, at the funeral home than she did <laughs> before she died. You know, rouge and you know, all that kind of stuff. Whereas at Wat Nanachat, they bring the body to the monastery and we burn it. We have a, a burning pyre. It's very powerful. Very, very powerful when you see that. I used to go see um, autopsies at Siri Rod when I was a young monk. Uh, and very, very powerful. There was one monk, there was a man who was a monk, and he had died, and they did the autopsy on him, and basically they, they, they took, the, the mortician took a, uh, a scalpel and just cut it here and just took his face off. Oh, that's interesting. And all of a sudden, you were dead on the face. And then he cut the, then he cut the skull open and took the brain out. And really, it's really kind of very powerful. And then I asked him, what, <laughs> how did he die? He said he had a brain hemorrhage. He was thinking too much. <laughs> so, you know, it's very powerful. And it's not just about, you know, it's like it's about my, ex and that's what he's doing. Actually, the Buddha is taking personally old age, sickness, and death, isn't he? He's taking it into his own personhood and see, that is my lot. And then he takes it universally, saying that's everyone's law. Everyone has that. So you have to kind of really think how powerful that has hit him. And that happens to us. Like, you know, we don't, we don't think about death and so on. And then someone close to us dies and say, wow. And people get transformed, don't they? They start to pick up Dhamma practice they, or, or they have a nervous breakdown or something. They, they, really, they really change, don't they, when they have these. And these are why we call them devadutas. Because they're the heavenly messengers. 
and and you know, like in in Western um, iconography, devas are kind of with wings, <laughs> fluffy white wings. <laughs> Angel group. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean this. <laughs> and uh, David Dutas, David Heavenly Messengers, are old age, sickness, death, but the fourth. And people often forget the fourth. And what is the fourth? Well, Siddhartha goes out the fourth time and he sees a sadhu sitting under a tree meditating. So it's really important to remember the fourth one, otherwise, it just would be kind of a de- depressing existential predicament we're in. But he sees the fourth one and he asks, Chana, well, and, and who is that? And he says, that is a sadhu and he is searching for the deathless. Right? So you kind of, you kind of get what's going on where, oh, I see. And you see Indian philosophy had that. Indian philosophy had this idea of the amata dhamma, or moksha, or liberation, or freedom. Western culture doesn't have that. You know, they, like Buddhism has become like psychology, transcendent understanding it. You might have it in some mystic Christianity, but um, you get it from, from the East. You get it from the Buddha. Um, so, he, he says to himself, that's what I have to realize because I am subject to old age, sickness, and death, and we are all subject to death, and I'm going to try to find that for the sake of all humans. So it's a real kind of grand gesture, as well as a, a personal uh, search. And, and so he goes out, and you know, he, he does ascetic practices, so he tries to repress desire, and then he does probably absorption practices and he's successful that doesn't work because it's not the deathless it's still born and dies so he does those with Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta he does some kind of you know extreme meditation practices and he's very successful again right he's a successful ascetic he's a successful meditator but he doesn't answer the question what is it that does not die or is there a way out of old age, sickness, and death? So finally, says, I'm going to just have to sort this out myself. He goes off on his own. And uh, he starts eating, right? Sujata brings him a bit of nam tom, or tom, what do, you, what do, you, what do I get for breakfast? <laughs> Kao tom, right? She comes and brings him a bit of, well, something like that. <laughs> Kao tom. Because he's been fasting and <laughs> punishing himself. I'm sure Sujata was Thai, right? She came and offered him. <laughs> and he takes food. And the others, of course, give up on him. Oh, pra-alachi, right? They're kind of <laughs> pathetic. Because he's so now he's given up just willful power, right? So he's tried just absorbing and, and just concentrating the mind and getting the mind still. When he comes out of that, he's still got the same problem. He hasn't figured it out. Then he just tries suppression, willpower. He almost dies. That doesn't work. So he says, I think I'll have breakfast. (laughs) I think I'll take care of the body. He starts to actually do something pleasant. 
And then he remembers the time when he's meditating and dad is plowing the fields because <laughs> it's a Brahmin ritual and doing the first plowing. And he remembers the time where he was meditating and his mind became very peaceful. He says, what if I went, I wonder if that pleasure would be, could I use that kind of pleasure? And he says, yeah, that'd probably be all right. So up until then, it's all, all you know, it's been like willpower and, and calculate, kind of, you know, kill, kill the farmer. So now he, he starts to live normally. He eats food, and then he remembers that and, and starts to actually become a more healthy human being in physically and mentally, too. He's not tormenting himself. He's not just doing Toraman anymore. And he starts to become very, very balanced, and his meditation goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and then we have the enlightenment. So then the, after the enlightenment, then you get this statement. Um, there is the, I don't know how it translates in Thai, it's worthwhile reading it, but there, there uh, he, you know, he, he, he has full realization, and, and this freedom now, he has realized what his goal was. So his goal was to realize uh, something which is beyond this mortal condition. And he says there is the uncreated, the unconditioned, the unborn, the deathless, Nibbana. And he says if there was not that, if there was not the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginal, the unborn, the deathless, Nibbana, there would be no release, no escape from birth and death. So he's solved it, he's done it, right? So that's why it's, it's really important for me. I always found that very important because then I get, okay, why the Buddha was doing this, why he picked it up, and then why he taught the way he taught. To me, it seems, that seems very central to all the methodology around the five khandhas or Paticca Samuppada or the Four Noble Truths. All the methodology for me comes from that realization. Right? So I've always found that logical package important. So when I see, say, in the West, when, when, when people aren't interested in transcendence and they, they're just leaving it at a kind of psychological uh, betterment, it's okay, but you're still stuck with the problem of old age, sickness, and death. Right? So to me, it's a bit of a shame, really. But there are some beings with little dust in their eyes, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and uh, so, then, then the teaching is laid out in a way where we no longer seek our fulfillment in the conditions that are born and die. Right? So what, what conditions are born and die? So the body, feelings, perceptions, conceptions, uh, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, etc., the five khandhas, uh, relationships, um, thoughts, memories, uh, business opportunities, the whole thing, right? So what's left? The unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, right? So the logic of it is, if you want to be, if you're thirsty and you drink water, you'll satisfy your thirst. But if you want to realize what the Buddha realized, you have to look in a different... You can't, you, you, you can't find 
the unconditioned in conditions, right? So you cannot find the deathless in that which is born and dying. You cannot find fulfillment in that which is not fulfilling. You cannot find permanence in the impermanent. So the, the methodology is don't look in the wrong place. Don't look in the wrong place. But you have this one problem. It's called avijja, and its manifestation is tanha. And you have itching and scratching. Right? So you have, a, you, you have a problem that you can get short-term satisfaction from certain ways of behavior such as um, watching Netflix <laughs> all night, <laughs> eating a pizza. But inevitably, you know, you do enough Netflix and pizza or whatever you like to do, you'll reach the same state the Buddha had in the palace. And you'll say, wow, that, w- that isn't it. That isn't it. And the more profoundly you realize that isn't it, you won't go to it. <laughs> You see what I mean? And you'll start to not go out into the object. So Lumpo Dun's teaching, the mind going outside is the cause. The result of the mind going outside is suffering. The mind knowing the mind is the path. The result of the mind knowing the mind is the end of suffering. So you get the logic of that now. You get the logic. The mind going out is always trying to find fulfillment in that which is changing. So you stop doing that. And, 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 and so what you do, you start to observe tanha and not follow its, its pull outwards. And as you observe that and tanha ceases, you start to touch something that is actually always there, which is consciousness itself or awakeness or knowing or ru or whatever you want to call it. Because now, as I've been using this language, you're, you're available to something other than things which are changing you're available to the unchanging because you're not distracted, you're not preoccupied, you're not angry, fearful, you're not caught in those things, you know them. And as you do that, you begin to see that, that awareness itself, if it doesn't attach to conditions, that it starts to kind of open a door, open a door inwards to some very deep peace and silence and emptiness, and you get all those different kind of words. And so, uh, in this question, awareness, is awareness permanent? Well, yes and no. But I, I like the idea of doorway, because I think until, until you know, as long as we have um, avijja functioning, as long as, as we have mana functioning, or atavada functioning, or any kind of ignorance, then it's always like a, a feeling of me being aware. And, and, and that is a problem. And, and, and so that falls away and maybe there is a deeper and deeper and deeper realization what awareness is about. But the full realization of that would be enlightenment, right? So I like, I like the idea of doorway. But doorway also participates in the inner and outer, as I've been describing. Uh, this is what it is. You know? So what, what is that phrase saying? It's saying, uh, it's actually the phrase of don't grasp. This is what it is. Penyang niang, right? Now to really do that, you can't, you can't be trying to get anything or get rid of anything. And that's tanha. 
And you can't also, also just be lost in it. Like, you know, being, being lost in a movie is not awareness of the movie. It's total rebirth in the movie. Have you ever noticed how if you'd really get lost in something, you come out of it like you're in another world? It's like a funny feeling, isn't it? If you absorb into a novel or, or a movie or something and you're really taken by all the characters and all that, you know, when you come out of it, you're kind of, wow, where was I? So that's, that's kamatanha, right? But the way it is, is just knowing. And that's why we use uh, anicca sanya, because the, the, the perception of change is particularly powerful because it does not allow us to attach to anything. When you, when you perceive change, you can't grasp anything. And because you don't grasp anything, it frees the mind. That's why it's particularly powerful. Uh, here and now. Right, so if you don't, if you can't, it, it, much, much of the problem of attachment and self is always back and forth, back and forth, past and future. So you begin to identify, well, that's past. And this is, so like Lompo Sumedho, when he, when he taught the, fir the first few years of retreats, I listened to him in England, he'd always begin the morning meditation with, the past is a memory. <laughs> the future is unknown. Now is the knowing. You know, and he'd always say this very powerful with his deep voice. And the past is a memory. Future is unknown. Now is the knowing. And that always brought you to the doorway, the, the doorway to the unconditioned. Because time, and, and that's why uh, time, understanding time is very important. Because I mean, there's psychological time. So if you had a good meditation, it's quick. If you have painful meditation, it's very long. How long is an hour? Psychologically, it can be years or moments, right? According to happiness and unhappiness. There's chronological time. One hour is 60 minutes is, it's so on and so forth. Um, but there's the akalika dhamma. What, what is that? We, have, we chant that all the time, don't we? Uh, so, I, the Dhamma is, uh, is here and now, Santitiko, Akaliko, Ehipasiko, not a matter of time here and now. And what is that about? What is that about? Well, if you're searching for the unconditioned in time, well, time is just about conditions. So you might create something, but if you've created something and it wasn't here now, it will die. So you can build up a meditative structure which is very very happy but if it wasn't here now then eventually it will die and so that's why a lot of meditators like in the beginning many of us you know maybe did things in meditation which created fantastic results but then they fell away and after a while we intuitively that can't be it we don't, you know, in the technique we used or the effort we made, we, we don't go there anymore because it died. It wasn't the deathless. It began and it ended. So there's a kind of intuition that starts to run in your mind around the, you know, the efforts you make and you, you no longer are interested in, in creating or producing anything. You're no longer interested in time. Yeah? You're interested in, well, here and now, here and now. So then 
the, the desire to get away from something, to go to something else, that begins to fall away. And you're able to bear with unfulfilled desire. And, and, and you stop wanting to create or, or go somewhere more and more. And you can see how the mind more and more comes to, it's like this, here and now, a kaliko, no place to go, nowhere to go, no becoming, non-becoming, non-resistance. All that language becomes more and more part of your wisdom understanding. Hmm? And so what happens is the, the capacity not to get caught up with the khandhas or the conditions becomes more and more profound. And because it becomes more profound than the asavas, you know, we talk about asavas, which are the outflows of greed, hatred, and delusion, you begin to be okay with them. You don't run away from them anymore. And so anger comes up or fear comes up or whatever, and you know, you're patient, you know, and you realize there's no place to go. It has to be here and now. And you can endure a lot because you know it, it can't be about this emotion. It has to be something behind it. And so there's the, the end of the asavas. It's another way we talk about it where the greed, hatred, and delusion now begin to cease in the mind because you know them as anicca dukkanata. You don't invest any sense of personality in it. And so the mind becomes more and more clear, clear of fear, clear of anger, clear of greed, and the profundity of awareness becomes more and more realized. Huh? And the mind becomes more silent, and so on. And then the ideas of of no suffering or permanence and no self or Nibbana become much, much more clear what that's pointing to and the coolness of, of the mind not grasping. So there is, a, there is a kind of interesting aspect on time. There is a progression of, of, of freedom, but it's not done through time. I don't do this now to get something later. Because if I do that now, that's self, ego, becoming, tanha. I do this now for the sake of now. And hence Lompo's, uh statement, we practice for the sake of practice. That's what he's doing. He's doing a kalika dhamma. We do it right, we do it right, we do it right, and the rest is not our business. The rest is the business of dhamma, right? That's hard to do because you make all this effort, you want something. You know, just a little bit of happiness. <laughs> but you find that, that because you don't demand anything, that very non-demanding begins, oh, that's the happiness. It's not wanting that's the happiness. Ah, oh, it's always there, actually. That's the not wanting, not the experience, not the good, bad, or indifferent. It's not about, uh, oh, yeah. And you start to see, oh, even uh, with pain, there can be a peacefulness with pain or, or whatever it is. And you begin to see, oh, that's what it's about. It's a letting go of wanting. Huh? And that's niroda. And as you realize that, then, then the, the capacity of letting go becomes better and better and more clear and clearer. And, and the, the craving mind starts to fall away and fall away. Huh? So there is a progression, but it's always akalika. It's always timeless, timeless, timeless. Make sense? Yeah. So, if you, you know, I, I've always found it very important to, for me. It's helped me a lot in, in going back to that original story. I, and obviously, I go back to it a lot. 
and 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 understand that the reason the Buddha taught and, and and when when I understand that, then I understand why he says the khandas are dukkha. Not because the khandas are bad or evil, it's just that they are impermanent. And what's the problem with impermanence? Well, it's impermanent. <laughs> and he was looking for that which is beyond birth and death. So then you get the logic of it. Okay, then you can live with, with tanha or the khandas in a reasonable way. You don't, you don't expect the khandas, the emotions and so on, to be, to be the amata dhamma, but you can live with them, okay? That's all right. And then you can do things to enjoy life, you know, and you can, you can make things and create things, but you don't expect more from it than it can give. Right? So you don't expect, like Lung Chai would say, to, to, seek the, to seek permanence in the impermanent is like looking for a turtle with a mustache. Hayak. <laughs> you know, Lung had it. He just said these great phrases that way. And, and yeah, that's right. So, so it's, not a re, it's not a rejection of the khandas, that it's bad. It's not a rejection of emotions or social life or creative life. It's not a rejection, it's just that is limited. And if you know it's limitations, you can live within those limitations, but you realize that's not the goal. That's entertainment. So great, watch Netflix, right? That party party. <laughs> a little bit at a time. And, and then, it, then it, the life isn't so heavy, you know, sometimes you, you can get, make this very, very heavy. But then you start to see, even entertainment actually, it feels coarse. And the, and, and, and the silence of the mind, the peace of the mind, the, the, the mind is just free from, from that. You begin to you appreciate it more. And so the refinement of your participation in the world of the khandhas um, becomes something that you enjoy doing. So meditation is no longer just this hard work. It's something... Yeah, it's really nice. It's nice to go there, nice to go to that spot. So renunciation becomes more and more natural. It's not, it's not forced in any way. All right, I think that's two questions. I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Pretty good.